Hello, and welcome to episode 59 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric, and thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. My apologies for getting this out a day later than usual, as I was uh, pretty swamped this week uh, preparing for a webinar that just took place. Maybe we'll hear more about that in a future episode. But I'm very excited to speak with you today about the highlights for issue 2021-39, released on September 27th, 2021. And this week's issue was curated by Batul Almersrock, with help from the R Weekly team members and contributors. It is easy to take the common phrase of, a picture is worth a thousand words, for granted. Many of the resources we have shared on R Weekly demonstrate the impact and importance of visualization for distilling insights of data analysis. Visualization has also been a great hook for getting involved in learning about R and data science, with, for example, the Tidy Tuesday social learning project encouraging the community to provide their own takes on a curated data set every week. While Tidy Tuesday and other online learning communities are making great strides in promoting a welcoming atmosphere and mindset, the large majority of graphics produced in these efforts are missing a key component called alt text, or a textual representation of the visualization attached to the graphic as metadata. Those who need to consume content via assisted technology rely heavily on alt text to learn more about the contents of these graphs. And don't just take my word for it. Let's hear a clip from a recent talk that Liz Hare gave with the author of the resource we're about to talk about, Sylvia Canalone, on why these technologies are so important for distilling insights. Um, you may be asking why blind people need access to data visualization. I, I know that there are people who think that it's a form of communication that can't be transmitted in any other way, but most of the time it does need to be. Um, there are blind scientists who need to be able to uh, access, read the scientific literature and contribute to it and present their work. Um, there are more general applications in current events, things like election maps um, and public health. We all would like to be able to have access to knowing the COVID infection rates in the communities around us. There are uh, some statistical software packages like Quorum and SAS that will use uh, vector-oriented graphics to produce data visualizations that have aspects that can be grabbed by a screen reader, but R doesn't have any of that capability at this time. And with that framing in mind, I was very excited to see an excellent collection of resources, especially for those of us that are new to incorporating accessibility in data visualization as curated by postdoctoral researcher Sylvia Canalone in our first highlight today. Sylvia, as part of her series of blogs on curating compilations for resources that she finds helpful, has put together a very comprehensive list of links and general resources that can help you get started for getting involved in more accessibility for data visualization and advice on practical ways you can make this happen. And speaking of community, 
the post leads off with an exciting announcement that the Minority R Users Community, or MIR, has received a grant for teaching DataViz accessibility packages to the R community, and it looks like that's going to take place in spring of next year. So I'm very excited to see where that goes. And the rest of the post is broken up into two general categories, first of which is a set of resources on general principles of accessibility for data visualization. I won't have time to go through all these in this episode, but one that really resonated with me was the article by Doug Shepherds that gives me an excellent overview and background on some common misconceptions one might have about the importance of visualization in terms of distilling the content to those that are not able to fully digest it due to visual impairments or other disabilities, but that visualization itself at its core is an assistive technology. It may seem kind of radical at first, but when you start to put in the, the work, so to speak, on putting accessibility as a first-class mindset, it turns out that that actually benefits the visualization and the overall presentation of results as a whole. And that's just one of the many enlightening resources that are mentioned in Sylvia's post. And with respect to the R community itself, there's been a great movement on trying to make the tooling better supported for visualization accessibility. On top of the talk that Sylvia and Liz gave that we just gave a clip to, I definitely recommend reading or viewing that whole talk. There has been great movement in the tooling, especially in the R Markdown ecosystem. In fact, in a recent episode of our weekly highlights, we covered the blog post from the R Studio R Markdown team on how Knitter, the major package that drives our, our Markdown for reproducible research, now has an option in chunks called fig.alt that lets you quickly add the alt text for a visualization produced in an R Markdown report. There's also descriptions of a promising package called High Charter that gives you accessibility via its interactive JavaScript framework. And that is one of the first ways I've seen accessibility be addressed in interactive visualizations. That is something I'm going to definitely explore as I try to make future Shiny applications more accessible for the general community. As I mentioned at the top, I think this is an excellent starting point for those of you like me that want to make sure that we start to put these principles in mind first as we create our statistical analysis results and we share them with broader members of the community. Highly recommend reading and thank you to Sylvia for all the efforts she has done to accelerate data accessibility in the R community. And speaking of community, our next highlight talks about an interesting way that we can contribute in ways that maybe weren't as expected many years ago. As someone who's been involved with R since, to really date myself, 2005, it has been very interesting to see the involvement on how R resources are shared across the world. Of course, R itself, with its roots in academia, started its collaboration via a mailing list servers around the world, and especially where R was born at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. 
Well, times have certainly changed in respect to how the community connects. Obviously, the advent of the internet has been a huge part of that, but also the advent of new platforms to share content. One of the earliest methods I learned about great content in the art community and what other people were doing with R was in the form of specific websites or blogs. I still remember bookmarking David Smith's Revolutions blog as one of the very first ones I saw that was sharing innovative uses of R across the world. And even when I started my first ever podcast initiative called the R Podcast, there was, in essence, another avenue for sharing content and getting in touch with people quite easily, and that was social media. Although I only used Twitter back then to simply announce when new episodes arrived. But over the years, I learned that there is much, much more to social media than just saying a quick, hey, here's what I'm up to. It has now quickly become a very important component of not only connecting with others very easily, but also being able to share content quickly and easily. And one of the groups that's leveraging Twitter and social media quite well is the Our Ladies Initiative. We have spoken highly about that in previous highlights, but one of the efforts that they have done recently is have a rotating curator that shares interesting content, thought-provoking insights, and much more on behalf of the at We Are Our Ladies Twitter account. And that's where senior statistician at Adelphi Research, Shannon Poligi, decided to take a very big leap and actually becoming a curator for Our Ladies in February of this year. And she documented all of her process and learnings in our next highlight right here. Like many of Shannon's posts, she gets very practical into the entire process from start to finish alongside her candid thoughts on how everything went. First, she touches on a, a situation that we often encounter in our daily work or otherwise, and that's a little imposter syndrome. What's interesting to note is that there's been a great mix of, of curators for the R Ladies Initiative that have either had a lot of experience with R or frankly, are just getting started with R itself. And Shannon underscores the importance of no matter what your experience level is, that having your own perspective gives a unique personal flavor to this curator account. And the R ladies are very welcoming of all these different perspectives. Now, as someone that even to this day would not say they're quite as uh, fluent with things like Twitter posts as some others that I see in the community, Shannon goes into great detail on how she was able to start styling her content and assembling a bit of templates or an inspiration based on existing templates that the art ladies have put together for their branding of, say, slide presentations and elsewhere. And then comes the, comes the real hard part, so to speak, and that's planning. Shannon, much like myself, decided to draft her content into different notes along the way. Although with respect to sending content on Twitter, there are some things you have to account for, such as character limits and other formatting things with, for example, symbols or emojis. And speaking of that personal touch, Shannon then talks about some of the ways that she was inspired 
to, wrote, to develop her content for this week of curation. A healthy mix of practical statements, of thought-provoking polls, or other questions that would generate a lot of healthy response and dialogue on the various Twitter threads. Another great way she elicited the content from the community was launching simple polls that had roots in her days of teaching in academia. And then there are some practical tools you can use to make the tweeting process easier, one of which is a tool called TweetDeck. This is something that I have actually used as I've been helping out with various uh, brand or general accounts. It's an interesting way to look at different streams of Twitter in one place. But much like what Shannon says, it can be a little overwhelming to start with. Um, and there are, it's certainly not a perfect tool, but once you get the hang of it, I think it is quite valuable to help with this um, curating process. Another interesting tidbit that I didn't really think about until reading Shannon's post was this idea that when you're on this account, other than perhaps your first post of the week announcing that you will be taking over the curation, the rest of the post will not necessarily be tied to you in terms of the content itself unless you tag yourself in that post, which gives you a unique opportunity to perhaps step outside your comfort level, so to speak, and be a little more anonymous, if only for a spare moment. And certainly motivation plays a key role in this because it is a, a rather large initiative to become a part of, and it can be a bit daunting. As someone who also curates content via my voice or other avenues, it does help immensely that if you are following one of these curator apart accounts and you want to give them encouragement, definitely give them a response or a like on their post. I do admit it is quite motivating whenever I see some posts I share get some engagement, if only because it makes me feel like I am actually helping people out, so to speak. And I th and every little bit helps, no matter if it's a like, a retweet, or other ways of showing support. And lastly, Shannon concludes her post with a little bit of reflection on some of the benefits that she has received for being a curator for a week with our ladies. And I won't read them verbatim here, but I resonate with a lot of these as well, especially the concepts of collaboration. Maybe asking a question to help, help develop your content could lead to further discussions or at least point you in the right direction for others in the community that are doing great things. She's even highlighted being connected with Sylvia Canalone, who we just mentioned in the first highlight, to help styling certain gifts that she used in her post. But also, it can lead to other invitations to perhaps new conference or meetup talks. So frankly, just learning out loud, so to speak, or putting yourself out there is a great way to establish these connections and admittedly, it can be a little difficult to get over that initial hump of being a little nervous for these. But I think Shannon's experience definitely mirrors a lot of the things I felt in my early days of the art community, and frankly, still do to some extent. But once you are authentic and you're discussing these great things of a welcoming community, really only great things can happen from that. And perhaps you have some misconceptions about what it really means to contribute to the art community, well, I'll, I'll leave this segment with playing a clip from Shannon's recent talk at an Our Ladies meetup 
on her take on what contributions can really be about. And when you think about like contributing to the R community, you might think of like something like this, um, where Mara Averick talked about at the R Studio conference in 2018, contributing to tidyverse packages, right? And you might think of something like pull requests and issues and, and comments and doing the thing, but I, I don't think that's the only way to contribute to the R community, right? Like that is certainly one way and it's a very valuable way, but contributing can be a lot more than that. And we will have a link to the full talk in the supplements section of this episode's show notes. And again, credit to Shannon for being so authentic with herself, not only in this week of curation earlier this year, but documenting and sharing her thoughts candidly on her blog. And rounding out our highlights today is another great illustration of the power of automation for generating insights quickly and efficiently in the field of sports analytics. Fellow R Weekly curator Ryo Nakagawara has made another great post on his blog with analyzing, you guessed it, soccer data, but in this case, it's actually looking at a different soccer league and the various automations that he has been a part of to actually help with analyses. So in 2019, the Canadian Premier League, or CPL, was launched in Canada, but what was interesting is that alongside that effort, Center Circle and Stats Platform Groups launch an initiative, provide detailed data sets on the league as it was occurring. And just like any sport, there is a multitude of data to, and like any sport, there is no shortage of metrics involved with analyzing soccer data. And this, and the, and this collaboration has shared the raw files, both in CSV and Excel format, in a Google Drive that can be applied for access and be able to look at these files yourself. Now, it's one thing to be able to just go into Google Drive's interface itself and start manually downloading these files and launching R and providing analysis. But if you want to do this regularly, that can get tiring pretty quick. And that's where Rio's post talks about leveraging GitHub Actions alongside the very powerful Google Drive R package to create an ETL pipeline for this automation. First, Rio talks about getting set up with Google Drive as you have to actually create what's called a service account with your associated Google account. And luckily, Rio not only has the steps written down in text, he also has great screenshots to show you what that looks like when you actually try it yourself. This actually brings back some uh, memories, so to speak, of my recent projects where I've had to work with Amazon Web Services quite a bit with service accounts. So it can be a bit daunting if you're new to it. But again, credit to Rio for explaining this quite clearly. Once you have all that pre-work set up, it's then time to set up your GitHub Action. And we've had a few highlights recently that talk about GitHub Actions in more detail. And in fact, I just ventured into the world of GitHub Actions to provide an automated data pipeline for one of my shiny applications in the R community. Rio talks about setting up the repository for the action and starting to construct the YAML file that illustrates the workflow. There are various bits in this that can trip people up at first, especially concepts such as system dependencies for certain R packages. For example, the Google Drive package 
has dependencies on curl and SSL that if you are using an Ubuntu or Linux-based um, operating system for the action, you'll have to install those dependencies before trying to install the packages themselves. After setting up some steps of installing packages, then it's time to start writing your scripts where you get to flex your R skills in action. And in this workflow, Rio has separated the scripts into two. The first script is actually obtaining the data from Google Drive, again, leveraging the Google Drive R package. And the second is actually producing a visualization on these data sets. And one key part in Google, or in one key part in GitHub Actions is making sure that in your repository itself, you do not actually commit any API keys that you use to authenticate with Google into the repo itself. That could be a very dangerous thing for many different reasons. However, GitHub does have a section called secrets when you set up these actions where you can put the API keys into the secrets part of the repo which will not be visible to the general public. And the workflow concludes by once the date, once the visualization has been produced to actually automate a commit to the repository with the updated results. Sometimes it still seems a little magical to me that all this is possible, but once again, I can attest from personal experience that this works quite well. And this is probably one of the best starting points I've seen in terms of getting involved with GitHub Actions in a practical way. But this opens up a lot of possibilities that Rio touches on at the end of this post. And in fact, there have been other efforts that do similar things as some of the ideas he's mentioned, but tying it all together in the one place, there's still a lot of room for improvement there. Perhaps there could be a Twitter bot that posts the visualizations after they're created. Or it could be feeding these data into either an R Markdown dashboard or even a Shiny application. And it could also route this data to another database that might be used in other downstream products. So it looks like Rio's got some great content in store for the future to address these different principles. But once again, Let's use the technology to our advantage and eliminate a lot of the manual effort when we can. So GitHub Actions is another great way to make all this happen. And as I mentioned in previous highlights, GitHub Actions is not the only way to do this automation. There are other platforms as well, such as the CICD proportions of GitLab, for example. But this is a great way to get started and to whet your appetite for future integrations in the future. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But as always, we have another excellent issue of our weekly across the board that Batul has curated for us. Additional resources include an update to the Artsy package for creating generative art with ggplot2, which is a concept we touched on in previous episodes. An excellent Shiny application that shows the impact of food on the environment. And also, if you want to hear about how I actually started preparing for a recent webinar I was a part of with Shiny UI UX, we also have a link to a recording from a previous live stream where I actually walked through the process of selecting the application I wanted to share in that webinar. And I'll wrap up this episode with a bit of an announcement and perhaps a call to action. 
This podcast is now 59 episodes in, which almost seems hard to believe, but it has been a lot of fun. But I'm also reaching a point where I want to take a concept that, frankly, our weekly itself was founded upon, and that is the contributions of the community. So far, it's just been my voice on these highlights, and I certainly do what I can to dive deep into these stories or resources and give you fresh takes on the principles and thoughts that are exposed or expressed in these various mechanisms. But I would welcome additional voices to join me on this effort. And as Shannon has mentioned in some of her previous talks, and of course the blog post that we use in the second highlight, there are many different ways of contributing to, to the community. And I do think this medium of podcasting is certainly a valuable part. This is certainly not the only podcast out there that shares our content or data science content. And I want to make sure I can keep it going, but with additional perspectives. So if you like what our weekly has done in terms of both the, the content itself and especially this highlights podcast, and you are interested in joining me on this effort, please get in touch with me. You can certainly send me a note on Twitter. My direct messages are open. You can also contact me, me via email. My email is drcast, T-H-E-R-C-A-S-T, at gmail.com if you'd like to contact me that way. I would greatly value the additional perspectives of others in this brilliant community to keep this podcast going with high quality and frankly, to make it even better. All right, that'll do it for me. And we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.